read Leviticus chapter 17. We're pivoting now, having passed through the center to the second half of the book, the second main emphasis of the book of Leviticus. Hear God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among the people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. They shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice, does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord. That man shall be cut off from among his people. And what, whatever man of the house of God or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood nor any shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten. He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats, it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean, but if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more uh, for the reading of your word, uh, the word which we read in Leviticus, uh, a book which at times fe- uh, feels strange and foreign to us, but which through the preaching you are making familiar to all of us, me included. Uh, Lord, we're all benefiting from this, uh, I think, I hope, and, and I pray, we pray, God, that you would continue to bless the church as the Old Testament is opened up and read to the church. Amen. In order to understand where we are now in Leviticus, uh, we need to understand simply the basic division of the book. Uh, if the first part of the book dealt with uh, the sacrifices and then the priesthood and then the, the cleanliness code, code uh, you could divide it in that way. But, but, but really, the first section all dealt with atonement. What follows in chapter 17 to the end is called the holiness code. That's what we're beginning. 
That's what we have to bear in mind as we press in uh, to the second half and to the end of Leviticus. The basic outline beginning at this point is as follows. There are personal laws in chapters 17 through 20. You notice not only speak to Aaron and to the priest, but to all the people. Here are commands for all the people. Here we see in chapter 17, it's just as simple as this. Bring your sacrifices to the tabernacle and don't drink the blood. That's it. Just those two laws. But that, those were commands that the people needed to hear as part of their holiness. Uh, and so it will go to the end of chapter 20. Priestly laws, chapter 21 and 22. Uh, the concerns of Israel's calendar as a matter of holiness, chapters 23 through 25. And then blessing and cursing in chapter 26. The, the major emphasis is not surprisingly at this point, holiness. Uh, the key verse of the whole uh, of this second major section is found in chapter 19, verse 2. This is the verse we'll be coming back to over and over again. I imagine I'll say it many times every sermon. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's, that's it. That is a verse which is quoted again in the New Testament. It's... Uh, it, it, it is a major concern of God's covenant with Israel. You remember what God said uh, through Moses in another place in Exodus, that they shall be a kingdom uh, of priests, a holy nation. You shall be holy for I am holy. That is the central concern of the covenant, that through the covenant we might behold God's holiness and that we might partake of God's holiness and that we might reflect God's holiness as his people. Before we begin to look at what is said in Leviticus, uh, I want to just take a moment and look at a few key New Testament passages. Uh, for instance, 1 Peter chapter 1. We find Peter saying uh, exactly what we find here. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, verses 13 through 16, Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. You find Leviticus quoted in the New Testament. You find the concerns of the holiness code set forth in the New Covenant. In fact, you could say that what Peter says here is a kind of holiness code, code for the people of God. What he's stressing, as we'll see stressed in other texts I'll read, is that holiness is the dominant concern of the new man. Now that you have been redeemed, now that he has purchased you for himself as obedient children, don't conform yourself to the ways of the world or the ways of the old man, the ways you used to walk. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you continue reading in Peter, you see that's. What he says in chapter two, you're a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, my own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light men uh, or, or who were not a people. But uh, are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, 
I say it is a dominant concern of the new man. The conduct of the new man. Holiness. Personal holiness. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 and following. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. On and on he goes. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to recognize that we are free from sin as our master, but we are now slaves to God. With what end in view? Our own holiness. What then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace, certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been free from sin, set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And the end, everlasting life. You remember also what our Lord says in the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. Jesus is praying especially for the elect. Those whom the Lord has given him. His father. And he says, Lord, I pray that they may be holy as I am holy. Sanctify them in the truth. God, I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, but I ask you that leaving them in the world, you might sanctify them. That is, that you might set them apart as your own special possession. Mark them out as yours and mine. Sanctify them by the power of your word. And so he doesn't use the word holy, but he uses the word sanctify, which is in essence the same word. So holiness is... Clearly, not only the emphasis of the end of Leviticus, but it is one of the major concerns of the Bible. You come to the pages of the New Testament and you find it over and over again. And with such an obvious emphasis throughout the Bible, it obviously concerns us to understand the concept of holiness. And thus the value of the Old Testament holiness code appears to us. It, it offers to us a detailed analysis of the concept of holiness. Now, again, the two commands here are bring your offering to the tabernacle and don't drink the blood. I want to look at these two commands in their broader framework of holiness, why uh, they reflect the need for holiness. But even before that. I want to look more broadly at what is holiness. And throughout these chapters, we'll be answering that question. I wonder how you would answer that question. I know many of you were influenced by the teaching of R.C. Sproul. And uh, you'll remember this was the great emphasis of his ministry. In days where this attribute of God and of the church uh, has fallen out of favor and fallen out of use. uh, Days uh, which are so irreverent 
where men do not speak of holiness. Uh, this morning, you remember I said it used to be common for the people to say it was a kind of refrain in the life of the church. Take time to be holy. When's the last time you've heard anyone say that? We've just lost view of it entirely. What is holiness? I wonder if you have an answer to that question. Well, it's difficult to define because it's such an enormous concept. Uh, but certainly the holiness code is going to help us. Uh, the first thing that we have to say is that holiness is an attribute of God himself. The emphasis, be holy as I am holy, the emphasis is not as much on the command as the reason for the command. I am holy, God says. That's the starting point. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of the church. He's the one who sanctifies her. The thought being, man, if he is to be holy, his holiness comes only from God. And it comes out of a recognition and an appreciation for this about him. This quality of his nature. God is holy in and of himself. He doesn't need to seek to be holy. He is holy. His holiness is, now this is where the difficulty comes in. How would you define it? I found Voss, uh, and I have Voss right here beside me. He said it's his specific divinity. I don't know how helpful that definition is. Well, uh, it's difficult to define even for the great minds. I would say this. God's holiness is his essential perfection. It is the vast difference between he and his creation. God is set apart in the heavens. He dwells in an approachable, sinless, heavenly glory. That is holiness. He stands above all that is sinful, even above all that is created. Everything that sets him apart from man, that is his holiness. But holiness is also the concern of man. It isn't just an attribute of God, it is the concern of man. Not as a primary consideration. You don't begin with man's need for holiness. That's part of the problem. Men today are too preoccupied with themselves. They are considering holiness purely from an ethical standpoint. They aren't beginning with God. As I am holy, God says. It's the man who's preoccupied with God's holiness. It's man who knows God is holy. That's the man who wants to be holy. And so it is the concern of man, but not as a primary consideration. God's holiness is always primary. But as that which arises out of this more primary concern, man's desire to be holy arises out of his concern to know the God who is holy. Another way to look at it is this. Man's holiness is the logical consequence of man in relationship with God. That's what God is saying here. I am the Lord. I am holy. You stand in covenant relationship with me. And you cannot be holy apart from that. You cannot be holy standing outside of my covenant. And so God says, I am holy, therefore you are to be holy. What is holiness for man? Well, we've begun to answer that already by looking at the New Testament. Holiness for man is the result of this great change of man by God. The new birth, the new man. His, his, the focus and the bent of his life is holiness. That's precisely how Romans chapter 6 presents it. It's, it's who we are. It's what we're seeking. It's the result of, 
a deliberate choice on our part. It is our desire to be holy as God is holy. It's the thing we want. A conscious decision to be holy, to live in a certain way. To know God and to be like God. To pattern uh, the human life after the divine. And so another way to put this is that man's holiness is a result of coming in contact with the divine. Especially by means of the truth. That's what Jesus says. Uh, Father, sanctify them by the truth. That's the gospel coming to man as the power of God unto salvation, the power which changes us, the power which makes us holy. But also, and this makes sense within the context of of Leviticus, and it comes out immediately in chapter 18, by means of atonement. Blood has been shed for man. That transaction is holy in and of itself, but it also results in holiness. It leads to holiness. The structure of Leviticus is, is hugely important. You don't begin with telling man to be holy. You begin with telling him how sinful he is and how he's reconciled to God. Then you tell him to be holy. Again, we can lament uh, the days in which we live. This is something which has been lost. It's been lost even in Reformed churches. Uh, May I say even that we are too afraid at times of legalism. We need to be told to be holy. We need to take time to be holy. We need to understand what holy holiness is for that is who we are and that's what we're called to as new men and new women. And though we live in such a glib and irreverent age, it seems that man today is incapable ever of thinking a single serious thought. The church is called uh, to live and to think and to speak an entirely different way for we are those who handle divine things. Today, if men think of God at all, it is not God and his holiness. Well, Let it be different among us. And let Leviticus 17 and following lead us in a different direction. Which brings me uh, more particularly to what is said in Leviticus chapter 17. Now I've said there are these two laws. I don't want to just look at those two laws. They're perfectly straightforward. Don't make your sacrifice in the field. Bring your sacrifice to the door of the, the tabernacle and don't drink the blood. God's already said that, but he stresses it again. The way I want to look at these two commands is under three headings as a second point, namely the concerns of holiness. And that's the real value of Leviticus chapter 17 along with the others. They are telling us what are the concerns of holiness. The God who is holy says, these are the ways I want you to be holy. And if you are holy, these will be your concerns as well. And the first of these is to safeguard the blood. Because God is saying that the blood is holy to him and it has to be holy to you. That's the purpose of the prohibition. Don't drink the blood, the Lord says. After having set forth the sacredness of the blood as the means of atonement in chapters 1 through 16, but especially in chapter 16 on the day of atonement, here they are warned to keep the sacredness of the blood ever before them. Let them beware of profaning the blood, lest the blood itself fall into disrepute. Uh, You think of what the Corinthians were doing at the table of the Lord's Supper. They were treating it as a common thing rather than as something that is sacred. Well, insofar as the Lord's Supper points to the blood which was shed for us, we are to hold it as sacred. So in handling the blood, God said to Israel in the same way, beware of treating it as something common, as something to nourish the body. That's not the purpose of the blood, God is saying. The purpose of the blood, don't you see? is that man might be reconciled to God. Beware lest the blood fall into disrepute. 
profane, treated as something which is common. And so the first concern of holiness is the same concern of chapters 1 through 16. The dominant concern of those chapters was blood. You come into the holiness code and God is saying, safeguard the blood. Israel's salvation and your salvation and my salvation is made to depend upon the blood. And there would be no use in talking about holiness if that was ever pushed out of view. If man began in his pursuit of holiness to lose sight of his own atonement. If the means of our atonement was made common in our daily living. And so God says in verse 11. This is the key verse. I've been asked the question, why the blood? Here's the answer. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. That phrase, it's blood that makes atonement for the soul. It's as important as what is later said in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. Without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. Well for the blood, put this alongside it. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. This is the key thought. This is what explains all that has come before in chapters 1 through 16. Why God has made so much of the blood. Why God is teaching us to make so much of the blood. It is because, as uh, this is where Gerhardus Voss was eminently helpful. It is because uh, the blood is life passing through the veins. But when that blood is shed, it becomes the life poured out through the crisis of death. The shedding of blood represents A life that is given for another. The doctrine of substitution. That's what atonement is. The penalty that was due for me was paid by another. The wages of sin is death and that wage has been paid. And yet here was the danger. God teaching us this lesson along with Israel. The danger was as The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, do you remember that warning? He says, beware lest you trample the son of God underfoot and regard the blood as a common theme uh, thing. It's one of the most fearful things that has ever been uttered in scripture, trampling the son of God underfoot, regarding his blood as something common. He's talking about the very thing that God is talking about here. When God sets forth the very means of your salvation. And you disregard it. You hold it in contempt in your heart. There are many ways you can do this. We looked at one already. The way that you come to the Lord's Supper. And so holiness consists in this first and foremost. Holiness consists in keeping an eye ever toward the atonement. And the means of our reconciliation. This sanctifies all of our endeavors. It sanctifies our mealtimes. God, we thank you for the blood that was shed, that we might be saved. It sanctifies our times of worship. It sanctifies even the huntsmen in the woods. That is true holiness, safeguarding the central focus of our salvation. But surely at the same time, we must be struck by what our Lord says in John chapter 6. He says, God says, don't drink the blood. And Jesus says, you must drink the blood. Here, the blood of our Lord is brought into view. The blood that, uh, from the standpoint of him saying these words, was soon to be poured out, shed, and sprinkled. 
God says it's not something that is, or, or Jesus, who is God, obviously, not something that's forbidden, drinking my blood, eating my flesh, but something which is commanded. Some, uh, a transaction that is portrayed, once again, at the Lord's table. Here, the holiness of that blood does not prevent us from drinking it, but it, it invites us to do so, so that we might have eternal life in us, Jesus says. Let the spiritually minded hearer understand Jesus is not talking about something literal. But he is saying that his blood poured out on the cross is the substance of this Old Testament shadow. And unless we be made partakers of that blood by faith in his sacrifice, we have no part in him. His death does nothing for us unless we partake of the blood. He's no savior to us. Look at him pouring out his blood on Calvary. Will you let that blood wash you and make you clean? Will you even by faith partake of it? Will you drink the blood? Will you plead God's mercies, his atoning mercies on the basis of that blood and nothing else? Not on the basis of your works. Not on the basis of your repentance, not on the basis of your faith, not on the basis of anything that you have or do, but solely on the basis of the blood. Is that how you come to the Father? That is to make it holy, you see. To regard it not as that which is common, but uh, trampling it underfoot or regarding it as common, as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 says, but as that which is most precious, both in the sight of God and the sight of man. It is his blood poured out on the cross that makes atonement. You think of uh, the old hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the prayer of the penitent sinner. Not my sighs, nor tears, nor groans. The blood of Jesus. It is my life. It is my sanctification. His life was poured out for mine. And I sanctify it when I desire to have a part in it. When I say to God, this is my salvation. Nothing else can save me but the blood. This is the calling of the church, not just of the Christian in prayer or in his daily life. It's the calling of the church, always to safeguard the blood. To guard it is is our high priestly calling against every encroachment of works or false teaching or whatever. The blood of Jesus is always to be regarded as a thing most precious and most sacred. That's the first concern of holiness. The second concern is the worship of God. I think we'll see this again and again. We've seen it again and again. And actually, that's the first thing that's said here. I thought it was more appropriate to begin with the blood because that ties us into what we, all that we were just reading. The first thing God actually says is, I want you to worship me in a certain way and then don't worship me in another way. You see, God is, is always concerned about how we worship. He doesn't just say, well, as long as you're sincere, go, go for it. <laughs> and that seems to be the way the church functions today, but that isn't what God says. He says, I want you to be careful about how you worship me. And that's what holiness means. The grand object, Andrew Bonar says, of this law was to prevent idolatry. You see, idolatry isn't just worshipping false gods, but it can be also worshipping the true God falsely. I I, I got that from J.I. Packer, by the way, in Knowing God. Worshipping the true God falsely. Don't do that. Worship the true God truly. When we think of the holiness of God and our relation to it, as well as our possession of it as the people of God, we must always think of worship. The concerns of holiness concern the worship 
of God. If only we could grasp that today as Christians, it would go so far toward a reformation of the church. The concern of holiness is this. If you think of it as a distinction, it's always a line of demarcation. It is to distinguish the true from the false. God is saying, here's true worship. Here's false worship. They're both worship, you see, but one is false. If you've ever read Calvin, you'll, you'll see how much he talks about false worship. Our concern is to be those who worship God in spirit and in truth. True worship. And this becomes immediately the focus of the holiness code. It's the first thing God said. And, and he said, look, the heathens worshipped in a certain way. They worshipped demons. They worshipped uh, goats. They used the blood in, in, in all sorts of insane ways, frankly. And the tragedy was that Israel had already shown their propensity toward this idolatry. The question then becomes, how is this to be prevented? How is the, 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 the sanctuary of God to be safeguarded from the intrusion of the serpent? Well, there's three things that we see here. Safeguard the holiness of God's worship. The first is by focusing on God's words and God's commands, not man's. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, don't read that as an incidental introduction that's the key thought and as you read leviticus and the book that came before exodus one of the most common refrains of that book those two books is and they did all that the lord commanded and so you see the lord spoke and then they did what the lord said that's the way to be holy focus on scripture scriptural worship scriptural religion we will always go wrong when we begin to insert our own ideas our own wisdom that's the path to false worship. The path to true worship is to focus on God's word. Number one. Number two. By centralizing worship in the way God prescribes it. It's, it's almost humorous to me to read this because it, it, just, it describes man today. Man thinks, well, I can make my sacrifice in the woods. God will accept that. And God says, no, I won't. You can't make religion a purely individual concern. My holiness will only be known in the midst of my people. And in the context of the Old Covenant, God centralizes worship in the temple or the tabernacle. He says, that's where I'll be worshipped. That's where my holiness will be known. In the New Testament, God says, in the midst of the assembly of the saints, the church. You say, I can worship God just the same on my recliner. No, you can't. He centralizes worship. That's how you you safeguard the holiness of God's worship. The danger is to ignore this. You remember what the writer of the Hebrews says. Don't forsake the assemblies is the habit of some. And, and, and he has precisely the concern that Leviticus has in view. It's the holiness of the church. Having been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. How do you worship God? Are you trying to do so alone? I know you're not. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir. But I want you to understand the value of what we're doing. And why it's so important. Number three, even less popular than number two, by cutting off those who disobey. God keeps saying throughout this, and he's been saying it throughout the Pentateuch. Uh, how does he put it? Cut, that man shall be cut off from among his people. You find that line very many times. This is the danger. Paul says it himself, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Are you so foolish to think that you are strong enough to resist the presence of sinners in the midst of of the assembly of the saints. The only way to maintain holiness. Even in the context of the new covenant. 
The only way to prevent a further corruption of God's worship, which is hard enough to prevent in the midst of very earnest, serious-minded Christian people, the only way to maintain that is to be willing to cut off the profane, the blasphemer, the disobedient, the unrepentant. That is precisely what Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I wonder, even now, do we have the heart to do that? Are we willing to be a, a holy people unto the Lord, even if it's costly? But there is a third concern of holiness, uh, the worship of God being the second, uh, and uh, the, that third is daily living. As though God is saying, let no man think or claim holiness is found in only, only in God's house, in the midst of worship. Always notice the balance of scripture. No, not in his house only. It begins there. And, and, and you can't, well, you can't find it if you don't start there. But it doesn't stay there. The idea is the man who, who meets with God in the assembly of the saints. And he goes out from God's house. Having met with the Holy God, having been sanctified by that, he takes it with him in all he does. In other words, you see, the opposite danger is that we confine the concerns of holiness just to the church. We say, well, I'll be, I'll be holy on Sundays. But not on Monday through Saturday. That's, that's a false view of worship. Worship changes you. It ought to change you. If it isn't, you ought to examine yourself. It sanctifies all of our endeavors. That's what it means to meet with God. The concerns of holiness begin with worship, but they comprise the whole of man's life. And so you see God saying here, it meets man at his table when he's eating his meal with his family. It meets him at his game or his sport, the huntsman in the field. It meets him in all that he does. Again, the focus here is to show, and this is a theme I hope to expand, how life with God truly conceived, purchased by the blood, sanctifies all of life. Man who is reconciled to God, it sanctifies everything about him. Everything now is holy. Andrew Bonar, we should eat our daily bread in his presence. Again, he says, redemption should be sung of, of by every man in every situation. You see, you, you, you kill the deer and you see the blood poured out. You praise God for Calvary. Even more for the food than for the food which he gave you. And so I say again, while the concerns of holiness are focused most in the context of public worship, attending God's ordinances, which in the new covenant are prayer, the, preaching, the reading and the preaching of God's word, the sacraments, and the singing. This by no means limits the concerns to that context. Indeed, the context of worship itself suggests otherwise. The effect of reconciliation enjoyed through means of those ordinances and purchased by the blood poured out on the altar of the cross is that all of life is now consecrated to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, in one of his sermons on the verses we've been reading uh, in chapter 6 says this, what is holiness? It means that we become further and further removed from sins, such as adultery, fornication, murders, revelings, drunkenness, and all other of the items in the list in Galatians 5. Those are the works of the flesh. To be holy, I think this is so helpful in light of Leviticus. To be holy means that we no longer do things like these, but, we, but it does not stop at that. The essential thing about holiness is that we are devoted to God. 
Think of the holy vessels in the temple. They were called holy because they were set apart for that service only, for the service of God. He goes on to say, holiness is not a feeling. Holiness is not an experience. Holiness is to be devoted to God. Certainly that is the focus of those New Testament passages we read at the beginning. Uh, Peter and Paul are describing the life having been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is now consecrated and devoted to God. The concerns of holiness, uh, that is to say, under this third heading, deal simply and practically with the way we live. Here is where the ethical comes in view. Again, the ethical is not primary. But it's still crucial to say it's secondary is not to say it's unimportant. It is crucially important to the Christian life and to the Christian witness. A life lived in the presence of God devoted to him now that he's redeemed us. That's that's the thought of the new covenant and the new testament along with the old. And so I'd ask you in closing with our theme now being that of holiness. Do you see how God claims all things for himself? Ourselves, our lives, our worship. Our meal times all belongs to him. And how did he claim all things for himself? How did he make all things his own? Well, perhaps you say by right of creation. And uh, true indeed is that answer. But holiness goes even beyond that. And Leviticus helps us to see it uh, just as Hebrews does. Holiness says something like this. Here is something even in the created world that belongs to God in a special way. Something that isn't common. You see, it isn't necessarily just that it isn't sinful. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond that which is even common. Something that belongs to God in a special way. That's the holy thing. Something that God has made his own and set apart for his own special purposes. Like uh, the instruments and the priests in the temple and the blood. Something that God has purchased for himself. That's what holiness means. And such is God's meaning when he says, you shall therefore be holy, even as I am holy. And may God's people take such things to heart, for this is our calling. Amen. And now as we come to the uh, singing in response to God's word, uh, we will sing what is a new hymn. But I hope for many, which is a familiar hymn. And if not, it will be soon. I I, I plan actually to, to pick it again next Sunday morning and. And probably again and again and again, hymn 277 in the new Psalter hymnal. We will sing it a cappella.